Good morning. Today we will be reading from John 1, 6 through 18. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He, come, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. We're in the Gospel of John, so of course this morning I'm going to start instead in the book of Exodus because that's the only way to understand this particular text. So going back to the second book of the Bible, and many of you are familiar with the basic story, the people of Israel are in bondage to Egypt. They've been in bondage for hundreds of years. God goes to this man named Moses, says, I've chosen you to go, and you're the instrument through whom I am going to deliver my people from the world's greatest superpower at the time. So Moses goes, does this series of plagues over Egypt, and on that first night of Passover, the people of Israel go out, perhaps even a million of them, going out under the leadership of Moses, but more importantly, going under the leadership of God himself. And then Exodus says that by day, this pillar of cloud is leading them, and by night, it turns into this pillar of fire that is leading them. God is taking them across the middle of a wilderness, and by day, he is feeding them manna, this bread from heaven. He's literally giving them water out of a rock to quench their thirst. He takes them as far as Mount Sinai, which is where Moses goes up on this mountain and is meeting with God day by day. And God gives them the Ten Commandments, which you're probably all familiar with, and the rest of the law. Importantly for our conversation this morning, in the middle of this law that God is giving to not only Moses, but to his covenant people, he says this in Exodus 25, verse 8. To Moses, he says, "...let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst." And this sanctuary came to be known as the tabernacle, this little tent, basically 15 feet by 45 feet covered in animal skins in the middle of the wilderness, in the middle of what would become the 12 tribes, and God's glory would come down and dwell in the most holy place inside those animal skins. Now, Moses, as I said, is going back and forth to the Mount of Sinai, and speaking with God, receiving more of his law, more, of instruct, more instructions for his people. And as he's going back and forth, Exodus recounts this one particular story that many of you are familiar with, where the people of God, as Moses is away, think like, Moses has been gone too long, we're going to make an idol. And they take off all their gold jewelry that they've plundered the Egyptians, they've taken a bunch of the Egyptian stuff with them, 
and they make this golden calf, and they begin bowing down and worshiping it, praying to it, dancing around, singing to it, all these things. And as Moses is then coming down from the mountain, he says, what is this singing? It sounds like war. And they're like, no, 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 it doesn't sound like war. It sounds like singing and dancing. And they come down and realize that the people of God just that quickly, instead of worshiping Yahweh, who is the God that delivered them, are literally dancing around this calf, um, an image which they would have seen in Egypt. And they're worshiping this image instead of the invisible God who dwells in their midst. And there's this incredible conversation between God and Moses that then ensues where God says, hey, Moses, because of the rebellion of my people, because of how stiff-necked they are, I am not going to go up with you to the promised land. Like, I'll still give it to you because it's the promised land. I, I made my promise. I made my covenant. I'll give you the land. But because of how wicked they are, I'm not going with you. And Moses intercedes for the people of Israel, and he says, God, you've got to go with us. Because is this not the only way that we are distinct from other nations? We are not more powerful. We're not greater by any metric. But it's the fact that you, the true God, are with us and for us. That's the only thing that makes us who we are. And then Moses says this, and this is all in Exodus 33, by the way. Moses says this, please show me your glory. Like, let me know that you are for us. And there's this fascinating exchange that continues in then Exodus 34, where God says, you cannot see my glory. And you think about this. If you just look directly at the sun in the middle of the day, what happens to you? You would, you would at least go kind of temporarily blind. And the sun is one star of, I looked up this morning, and the best guesstimates now are that there are billions of trillions of stars in the universe. We can't look at one star, and God, all God's saying is you, you can't look at the creator of all those stars face to face. I can't show you that glory or it would destroy you. But God says, but this is what I'm going to do. On top of Mount Sinai, I'm going to put you in the cleft of this rock. And as I approach, and this is anthropomorphic, so he's using human language to describe now what's going to happen. But he basically says, I will cover you with my hand and I will pass by you. And as I leave, I'll remove my hand and you can see my back, but you can't see my face. And so this is what happens in Exodus 34. And we read this important verse in Exodus 34, verse 6, which says this, The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. That is Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so God is saying, I will go with you because you have interceded for these people and you recognize your sin. And he heaps up these words saying, I am merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So I forgive and I'll go and I'm faithful and true. And then Moses comes down from Mount Sinai and his face is still shining. It's not just like a sunburn, but he's like absorbed something of that radiant glory of God just being near him. And the people see that shining of Moses' face over a period of time as it gradually fades away. Moses instructs the people what God has told him. They proceed to build this tabernacle, and there's this point in time in Exodus where it says the, that presence of God, that Shekinah glory of God comes down in the midst of his people and inhabits that tent. And actually, the book of Exodus ends with these words. 
Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, which is another word for tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then the people did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. That's the end of the book of Exodus. My point here is that this arrangement then continues on for many years and many generations where God would lead them. God would lead his people. And they would pick up that tabernacle and they would move. And then they would restake that tabernacle where God basically was instructing them to or where God was stopping. And there came a time under King David where he desired to build a bigger, more beautiful, more permanent home for the Lord. Not just this tent of goat skins. His son Solomon actually builds that temple. And the Lord continues to dwell in it. But this generations-long presence of God in the middle of his people, in glory, all changes in the days of Ezekiel. So you fast forward to the year 586 B.C., and you'll learn this in secular history too, okay? But after generations of Israel's rebellion, there is a series of three raids by the Babylonians, and the Babylonians take the Israelites captive. They take them back to Babylon, except for some of them to inhabit the land. In 586 B.C., Jerusalem falls, and Ezekiel, the prophet, who was also a priest, gives this prophecy where he says, I, you know, stood, I stood there and literally watched as the glory of God departed from the temple and left the city. So that brings us all the way up to what Micah read for us this morning and the days of John. And the temple had been rebuilt by King Herod. It was, it was one of the most beautiful buildings in the ancient world, sitting on top the mountain. As you approach Jerusalem, you can see it from all different directions, gilded in gold, just glittering in the sun, beautiful, magnificent. The priests are there, and the sacrifices are there, and the incense is there, and all of that's going on. But the glory of God was long gone. He was not there in the midst of his people. And that brings us to our text this morning where I think John wants you to see three things. There's a revelation, there's a rejection, and there's a reward. So a little quick review from last week. Remember that John introduced in verses 1 through 5 this character that he calls the Word. And maybe initially you don't know who this Word is, but as he's describing the Word, he says the Word was with God in the beginning, before anything else existed. And the Word was God. And the word created all things, and without him was not anything made that was made. He says, in this word was life, in this word was light. And we ended last week by just pointing to verse 14, this word who was with God and who was God and is God came and was present with his people. So this word is not merely the voice of God as the Jews pictured him. He was not merely this abstract force that was responsible for logic and reason and order in the universe like the Greeks thought he was. This word is God in the flesh. This is, this is Jesus. This is how John is introducing us to Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the Messiah. 
And he came, as verse 9 says, to enlighten or to give light to, or you could say to, to make something known to everyone. And what we began to see last week, and we'll see more in depth this week, is that Jesus didn't come merely to give light about information. He came to give light about identity. In other words, he didn't just come to say what. He came to reveal a who. And that who is, as we see in this text, he's going to reveal God. So, point one, revelation. Um, First, I want to talk to you about the means of revelation. And we're saying this, but just to say it as clearly as I can, the means by which God chooses to reveal himself is Jesus became flesh and lived among us. And this is important because around this time that John is writing, around 90 AD, in Ephesus, there are a number, number of kind of seminal philosophies that would later become Gnosticism, this dualistic thinking of like your, your immaterial parts of you, your, your heart, not your physical organ, but your desires and your soul and your spirit and those kinds of things. Those are good. But they would say there's something inherently wrong with the physical body, something wrong with it, um, something almost evil or tainted about the physical body. And so many that are preaching in Ephesus around the time that John writes this are saying, Jesus could not have been fully God because he couldn't have had a body because that would have tainted him. It would have become evil. And other people are looking at it and saying, we believe Jesus was fully God. Therefore, he wasn't fully flesh. He wasn't fully human. He may have appeared almost like in costume, but that's all it was. He didn't actually have a human nature because they would say he couldn't. But you look again at verse 14, and John is explicitly clear in saying the word God became flesh. And this is a doctrine that many of you know as the incarnation. It's a word you just need to know. God coming in the flesh. But now, look at this next phrase. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. I want you to stop there, because the word dwelt is the verb form of the Greek word tent. You could translate it, God became flesh and pitched his tent in the middle of us. Or as the Jews would have said, God came, he became flesh, and he tabernacled among us. So John is deliberately alluding to the Exodus And the means whereby God used to dwell in the midst of his people, but has not for hundreds and hundreds of years. And he's saying that same God of the Exodus who used to put his glory in the middle of his people, that God has come back and he's again putting his glory in the middle of his people. So continue verse 14. He says, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And what's, what's neat is the Greek has several words for the word seeing or seen. And the one he uses here means astonished or attentive seeing. It's the kind of seeing where you would say, I mean, we don't say this much anymore, but they, they would say, behold, or like, look, because it's excited. It's excited. Can you believe this? Look, you got to look at this. It's, it's my astonished seeing when I see an incredible play and it's on Sports Center, and I'm like, Marty, you got you to gotta look. And John is saying, we saw something so incredible. You've got to look at this. You've got to behold this. 
So that's the means of revelation. Just God became flesh and tabernacled among us. Now, now look at the purpose of the revelation. He says to reveal the glory of God, the, the doxa, the glory, the splendor, the radiance, the brilliance of his glory. And if you're thinking through, John, when did you see that in Jesus? If you're saying we beheld his glory, glory as of the one and only Son of the Father, when did John see that? And some of your minds may race off to that instance where Peter, James, and John only of the disciples went up on this mountain with Jesus. The Bible says he was transfigured, whatever exactly that means. But it says that his, his face shines like with the brilliance of the sun and his clothes become white like no one could even bleach clothes at this point in time. And they all hear this voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That was his glory, and it was. But you know the incredible thing is, Matthew tells us that story, and Mark tells us that story, and Luke tells us that story, but John, who was there, does not tell us the story of the transfiguration. So in his mind, when he's pointing to the glory of God in Christ, he's not saying that was the moment. So maybe you look to and you think, well, John, John's going to go on to write about all these sign miracles that clearly manifest the glory of God and prove that he is the Messiah. And you're right, he does. I love what one writer says, though. He says, the, the truth is that at first glance, Jesus was not very glorious. He had his moments. But what did he actually accomplish? He references the words of Leon Morris, another commentator. He says, he preached to a few people in an outlying province of an ancient, long-since-vanished empire. Even there, he was not often in the capital, the center of affairs, but in a remote country area. He taught a few people, gathered a few disciples, did an uncertain number of miracles, aroused a great number of enemies, was betrayed by one close follower and disowned by another and died on a cross. Where is the glory? So can I suggest to you that even in John's gospel, much of God's glory that's being revealed through Jesus is paradoxical, which means we're inclined to miss it. So, so let me ask you this. Just referencing the gospel of John, when did Jesus himself say, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified? Or when did he say, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Or when did he say, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And it's one and the same answer. Jesus says all three of those things when he's headed to die on a cross. So on the brink of his bloody and brutal execution, Jesus says, now the world will know the glory of God. You're like, what? That he's about to die a criminal's death. So one commentator says, to the world, the cross was the most shameful of all things. It involved physical torture, personal humiliation, and a cursed death. This was God's way of showing us the true shame of our sin. But because the perfect Son of God died in this way, for us. The cross displays the grace of God to the highest glory of his name. And I want to just remind you, and the reason why we went there, 
what did the Lord say when he's passing by Moses and hiding him in the rock? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, that's written in Hebrew, but do you know abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness could be translated full of grace and truth, which should ring a bell. And if it doesn't, look back at your text. Because what John is saying is, I want to deliberately connect the work of Jesus to the work of Yahweh in the Old Testament when he's on Mount Sinai giving the Ten Commandments and he's giving the law and he's leading his people and he's forming a new covenant. And he's forming, in fact, a new people who will go to a new land and, and build everything. And John's saying, you need to see that Jesus is the same God full of grace and truth, and where are the grace and truth of God most fully revealed? Through the sacrifice of Jesus, giving his life for us. So, by the way, I should probably mention one other thing about the tabernacle that I intentionally skipped. It was the place of grace. Even in an era of law, so to speak, it was the place of grace, because the people who were still sinning who were still committing idolatry, who were still setting their affections on the wrong people and the wrong things, when they recognized, I've sinned against a holy God, I've broken our fellowship, I deserve to be separated from him, they could bring an innocent animal to the priests at the tabernacle, and the priest would say, okay, lay, lay your hand on the head of this sheep, for example, this lamb, and you are symbolically transferring the guilt of your sin to this innocent creature that's done nothing wrong. Now we're going to sacrifice the creature so you know that's what your sin deserved. And we will offer it as a burnt offering to the Lord. So the person, and the Old Testament word is, gets atoned for. Their sin gets covered. Because an innocent lamb dies in his or her place. Well, don't you see this is too also pointing to... <laughs> What's John about to say? I know we didn't read past verse 18, but you can let your eyes just fall a couple verses later when John's saying, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All of this is pointing to the Exodus. And John is packing all of this into one verse, verse 14. And he's saying, how can you know the grace and glory of God? Ultimately, because a new Exodus has come. A new deliverance, a new salvation has come to God's people. And it's come because God puts his glory in the midst of humanity by wrapping it in human flesh. So what's the result? Verse 18. He says, no one has ever seen God. And to understand this, I would insert the word but. No one has ever seen God. But the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And John's point is Jesus has made the unknowable Knowable. Jesus has made the invisible visible. And he's done it ultimately through the glory and the grace and the truth of the cross. By the way, when I say the result of the revelation is what? I'm going to use this word. The result of the revelation of Jesus is that God is exegeted through the person and work of Christ. And if you look here at this verse, verse 18, when he says... No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's right hand has made him known, if you knew Greek, has made him known as the word exegesis. 
which is what you do, which is what I do, when you go to a text of Scripture and you start saying, what does this word mean? What does this phrase mean? What is the context? And we're unpacking a text of Scripture. We're exegeting. We're, we're drawing out the understanding in detail of a verse or a story. And John literally says, Jesus has exegeted God. You want to know God? Then know Jesus. Because as he's going to go on in this letter, the stories about Jesus the words of Jesus, even the prayers of Jesus, are all exegeting God. They're all explaining God and illustrating God so that we can know him. Okay, I know two-thirds of my points remain, but I'm almost done. Because the last two points are basically two sides of one coin answering the question, so how do you respond to God's revelation in Christ? And the first of those words is rejection. Notice verse 10, first of all, that the world, John says, didn't recognize the light. I'll actually start in verse 9 again so you have a little context. He says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And that, that word know means did not recognize him. You think of how many people that grew up with Jesus in Nazareth, and it just never dawned on them that, oh, this is the Messiah, this is what God looks like, this is the revelation of God, they didn't perceive it. But he goes on in verse 11 to say, not only did the world not recognize the light, they also didn't receive the light. Verse 11 says, he came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him. And this, this word is a little bit more serious. It means to welcome someone, to show hospitality to someone, to accept to acknowledge someone. And what John is saying here is not only did people not perceive that he was the son of God, but many people perceived that and still rejected him. You know, later even Pilate, the Roman governor, is going to be like, I think you're putting him to death because you envy him. Because you had this, you had this little twinkle light, right? And then the sun comes up. And everybody turned away from your lamp, and they were like, that's the thing we're waiting for. And, and you got eclipsed by his glory and by his greatness and by his grace. And, and for a lot of people, like John in this story, he's like, that's great. That's fine. It was never about me. It's about him. Look at him. I'm not him. He's him. Look at him. And these Pharisees and Sadducees, other religious leaders, even some secular leaders are like, no, he's not him. No, no. Look, stop looking at him. Follow me. Obey me. I'm losing power here. And that's what's going on. And that's many people's response in our world still today. A, to just simply not recognize the beauty, the uniqueness, the love that Jesus has for you, for them. And some even recognizing it, being like, okay, I believe this is God. Uh, do you know most of our country still says that, basically, on paper? Like, yeah, I believe in a God, and I, yeah, I even believe that Jesus is him somehow. Okay, do you receive him? Do, do you commit your life to him? No. No, I want to do my own life. I want to do my own thing. But the flip side of that rejection is this final point, which is reward. And I want to distinguish here because we typically think of a reward as something that we've earned. We were driving down here this morning, and Miles, our nine-year-old, says, $10,000 to help them find their dog? And he's reading, there's a billboard on I-70. Maybe some of you have seen it. And he's like, that's it. He's like, okay, Dad, if, if I find the dog, can I have the $10,000? And I was like, sure. 
And Micah said, our 10-year-old says, well, you'd have to split it with me. And I was like, he didn't have to split it with you. Why, why would he? You're, you're playing video games, and he's looking for their lost dog. There's a $10,000 reward. He earned the $10,000. And then Miles is like, well, do I have to split it with you? And I was like, well, to the degree that I'm driving you around and spending gas money, you do need to split it with me. We think of a reward as something like you, you earned it. You did the work. You got the thing. But notice first the way John describes this is the reward is not something you earned. It's something he earned. The reward is a free gift. John says, just receive the light, or he says, just believe in the light. And by the way, you'll notice he uses those two terms interchangeably. To receive the light is to believe in the light. And to believe in the light is to receive the light. But the point of receiving a gift is it's a gift. It was free to you. You just trust. You just receive it. You don't earn the salvation that Jesus came to bring, but you do receive it as a free gift by saying, I trust him with my life. And this is a key in verses 16 and 17. He says, the law came through Moses. You see another reference back to the Exodus. It's like five in this couple verses. The law came through Moses, but in this new Exodus, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And notice, not just grace, but grace upon grace. In other words, grace just keeps coming. God lavishes his grace on you in one form after another, in one instance of grace after another, after another, after another. And I want to close here just showing you two facets of that, that that John directly mentions here in verses 12 and 13. Because he says, the reward, the gift that someone earned for you is an adoption and a new birth into the family of God, verses 12 and 13. So he's saying, what, what does Christ give to those who receive him or, or believe in him, to use those terms? Verse 12, he gave the right to become children of God. And it's interesting, the word right is actually the word authority in the Greek language. And he's saying, though Jesus is the one and only, and he says that right here, Jesus is the one and only son of God. But he came that you and I can be adopted into his family and receive his authority. What, what, is authority, what, what authority does he have? Well, he's king. So he's basically saying, you're my children adopted into my family, and you therefore are princes, as it were. You, you get all the authority that I have. As our family has adopted children, and Marty went out to California as one of her brothers was finalizing the adoption of one of their children. And I'm not going to get the exact wording correct, but there's actually a part of this ceremony before a judge who's legalizing this adoption saying, you know, are you agreeing to accept this child as an equal to your biological children? They get all the rights and privileges of your parenting legally as the children that you bore with your own body. And they say yes. And that's the picture here. It's like only Jesus is God, but he's saying, let me by adoption give you all of the inheritance, give you all of the authority, give you all the blessing that only he deserves. And he goes on in verse 13, we were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And we'll say a lot more about this when we come to chapter 3, and there's this conversation in the middle of the night with Nicodemus, and Jesus is like, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, I, I don't get it. And he explains it. But what he's saying clearly here, if it's not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, that's three ways of describing just natural biological birth. 
He's saying it didn't happen that way. God did this. God gave you an entirely new life. And we're going to find out later in John, it's an eternal life and it's an abundant life now. It's both of those things. It's all of those things. And so you can see why John the Baptist, which, by the way, thank you for all those last week who thought you were correcting me, okay? Because I said last week, I was like, John is incredible because John is not mentioned in the Gospel of John. And you're like, except for the very next verse where you stop and it says, John bore witness. So, so that's John the Baptist who is mentioned in the Gospel of John. You're right. John the Apostle who wrote this does not mention himself. So, so John's there. But, but you can see why John the Baptist is like, look at him. This is God revealed in all the glory of the Exodus where everything that Moses, the patriarch of God's people, could not see it. But now every one of us could see it because he wrapped himself in flesh. You see why John says, don't believe in me, believe in him, look at him, follow him. In the early 1960s, I was not alive, but I've read about this. There was a space race between Russia and the United States in particular. And there's a, there's a sense in which Russia won. They were the first to put a cosmonaut in space. Yuri Gagarin goes up in a rocket, looks around, comes back. And one of the things that really stood out to him, apparently, and he reflected on was saying, I see no God up here. I don't believe there's a God. He's like, because I went up there where he is, and he wasn't there. Which now we think in terms of what we know through not even the Hubble Space Telescope, but other telescopes we literally send out into space, and we're like, oh, buddy, you, you didn't go that far. <laughs> you know. But C.S. Lewis in 1963, the, the, the British writer C.S. Lewis published this little essay, The Seeing Eye, in response to Yuri Gagarin saying, I went up there, there's no God. And in essence, what C.S. Lewis says is, if there is a God... You're not going to interact with him the way that a man on the first floor, you, interacts with someone living on the second floor. God is not the man upstairs. You don't just go to space and you're like, oh, there you are. He says you would interact with him the way that Hamlet interacts with Shakespeare, which is to say Shakespeare is the author of the play. He writes about Hamlet. How's Hamlet ever going to interact with Shakespeare, who is the author of the story? There's another illustration. In the early 1900s, there was a British writer by the name of Dorothy Sayers who wrote a, a lengthy list of um, 11 detective novels, I think 21 short stories about Lord Peter Whimsey. Some of you may have seen some of these series on BBC. She's writing all these stories about Lord Peter Whimsey, just a very normal guy, like down-to-earth guy, but like Jessica Fletcher, you know, and like murder she wrote. Apparently, a, like a lot of murder happens in this guy's orbit, and he just figures it all out. He solves the crimes. He finds out who's guilty. And as she's writing along, Dorothy Sayers is writing this series of stories. In the middle of the series, she introduces a character by the name of Harriet Vane. And Harriet meets Lord Peter Whimsey. Together they solve a murder. And Lord Peter Whimsey says, I would like to marry you. And she said, I'm going to play a little harder to get than that. And just, we, we solved a crime together. That does not make you a good husband. Okay, I'm not interested. And for a period of years, then the stories go on, and the characters develop. And you find out Harriet Vane is a graduate of Oxford. Harriet Vane is herself a writer of mystery novels. Then partway through, 
She actually does fall in love with Peter Whimsey. They get married. They continue to solve crimes, including on their honeymoon. They have children who help them solve crimes, et cetera, et cetera. What many who have done this research conclude is that partway through writing about Lord Peter Whimsey, Dorothy Sayers, the author, in a sense fell in love with her own character. She created this fascinating man, and she's like, I'd like to know that man. And she writes herself into the story. So all these people will say, Harriet Vane is Dorothy Sayers, who was one of the first female graduates of Oxford and a writer of mystery novels. And there are many, many other parallels. So it's like, I love the character I've created. The only way I can interact with that character is if I put myself in the story. And that's what she did. Do you see that that's what God did for you in Christ? Is that he is Shakespeare to Hamlet, He's unknowable, he's invisible, and he's like, but what if I write myself into their story? What if I become flesh and tabernacle in the midst of my people? What if I give myself a body that can be killed? What will they do? Well, they'll kill you. But that's what he did. He writes himself into our story because this was always his story, because he loves us. He wants us to know him. He wants us to worship him, not because he's some megalomaniac, but because he knows where will your truest freedom come? Where will your truest joy come? You're all worshipers anyway. If you didn't know that, you're all pursuing things with the affections of your heart. And you're saying, I worship you. Do things for me. My job needs to do things for me. Drugs and alcohol need to do things for me. Sex needs to do things for me. And you have your things. You're like, this, this, is, this is really functionally what you worship. And, and God is like, if, if I write myself into the story as the one worthy of worship, filled with grace and truth, then people will know freedom. They'll know adoption. They'll be able to come home to the Father. Most of you would say you're already a believer. If you're not, if, you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, do you see that he's God? Do you see that he writes himself into your story? Not just the story, but your story. He's interacting with you right now through these words. And he's inviting you, receive me, believe me, trust me with your life. Come home as one who inherits the authority and the rights that are mine. I give to you as my child. Most of you would say, I believe that. Okay, so... Daily, as you interact with him in your life, do you, do you see why he, you don't just set him to the side and say, I've got my thing, I've got my plans, I've got my idea of how this should go, and, and I'll call him in as a consultant for the really big, important decisions. And it's like, well, you're not going to hear him anyway. You're not used to hearing his voice. You don't recognize his voice because you do it all on your own. This is a God who's worthy of centering your life on. Um, to use the words, the anti-words of the rejection, to recognize him in your everyday, to receive him in your everyday, and to build your very identity on him. Let's pray.